0: Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello, and welcome to the Grow CFO Show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today we're gonna talk about interest rates. Interest rates are at a higher level than they've been for some time, and they're causing a lot of us a little bit of concern. Time to talk about what's happening in the market, what the implications are, what the opportunities even might be, and who better to talk about that than somebody from the banking community. So today's guest is a CPA, Bill Fink from Philadelphia, and he's an executive vice president in TD Bank. Bill, welcome to the Gross EFO Show.
1: Kevin, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for the opportunity, and I'm looking forward to an engaging conversation.
0: Bill, tell us just a little bit about yourself. How does a CPA end up being an executive vice president in a bank?
1: Well, Kevin, it's been a long journey, and I'm a firm believer in continuing education. So I'll explain that, how it all came to be momentarily. But by background, I am a commercial banking credit executive who happens to be a CPA, I would say by reputation, I have been known for assisting clients to develop and translate corporate goals into very actionable, achievable, and profitable operations. So that's what over the years has really brought me to the forefront. Part of that we're going to talk about today involves mergers and acquisitions, as well as organic growth. And so through my career, being focused on mergers and acquisitions, I had a client, who was a very prominent CFO of a company at an earlier stage in my career, as I sat down with him, asked him specifically, what would you recommend for a young person who is looking to have a career in finance and banking? And he said to me, Kevin, one simple thing, become a CPA. And that was after going to night school for my MBA for six years. So it wasn't the most Appetizing piece of information that I got after six years of night school. And he said, Accounting is the language of finance. And there's nothing better to ensure that you understand finance than to understand accounting. So I went back to night school and pursued accounting, did that, took the CPA exam. And I uh, can say happily, I'm 25 years of CPA now. And it has been a difference maker in my career working with clients particularly CFOs, and that's a significant part of the listening audience today, I can understand directly what the numbers mean. I know what goes into formulating the numbers. I understand, in addition to being a CPA, I have a tax background here in the U.S. So when you talk about mergers and acquisitions and what it means, beyond just putting companies together, what goes into doing it, what are the intricacies I've had that understanding. So it's been a fabulous addition in my career.
0: Brilliant. And thinking back to my own career, I think I got a similar piece of advice from my own father, who was a chartered accountant, English equivalent of CPA, in public practice. And he basically said, Kevin, if you qualify as an accountant, you've got a qualification that will take you into whatever area of business you want to be involved in. And certainly that has been great advice. And it certainly served me well for, I think, when did I actually qualify? It's a long time ago, must be 1985. (laughs) So it's a piece of advice that served for a long, long career. But Bill, when we first arranged this podcast, you were head of US middle market banking at TD Bank. I believe you've just got a new
1: position. I, in fact, have, Kevin. I've been asked to take on an expanded role beyond running the middle market business here at TD, which was a great opportunity. We grew that very nicely. I now have, I'll say, a unique position. I am the head of US Commercial Strategic Partnerships. And what does that mean in plain English? I now That's exactly
0: a- the question I was just going to ask. What does that mean
1: in plain <laughs> English? <laughs> we tend to have come up with these exotic, if not creative titles from time to time. And I have it based on the work that I did with our middle market and was able to grow that significantly in the last two years while maintaining outstanding asset quality. It's a challenging environment. Growth with quality is what I expect everyone yearns for. And looking at that, I now have the opportunity to work across the U.S. bank as well as our investment bank, TD Securities. And the objective is to take and leverage the products and services, align them, make sure we understand them, deliver them holistically to the client, not as separate organizations, but as one combined powerhouse to be able to serve clients from, I'll say, cradle to grave. And whether they have at the beginning, they need simplistic financing, or they move ultimately to the IPO market or the debt capital markets with high yield notes, we stand aligned as an organization to span and provide those services. And historically within the banking business, that's been a somewhat segmented approach for many, many years. And the objective that we have is to bring a unified, coordinated approach for all our commercial banking activity, whether that be healthcare, education, municipal finance, of course, commercial and industrial loans where middle market is such a big, big part of that. So that's the mission off to a good start. And I'm very optimistic. I've got great partners that I'm working with to do that. We're aligned to achieve the mission. So I'm very encouraged where we are
0: today and where we're going. Really, it sounds like an exciting challenge. It is very much is so. The real reason that we're here to talk today is to
1: discuss interest rates. Great topic, and it can't be more timely. And given what's happened since 22 through most of the world into calendar year 2023, as a tail to many of the pandemic-induced initiatives across most of the world, and I know our audience is in the UK as well as European Union, the US. Canada. And you look across each of those segments, the pandemic hit from a timing perspective a little bit differently. So the economic responses to overcoming the pandemic impact were not exactly the same. But as they began to manifest, there's no question that stimulus to little goods and services really caused inflation throughout most of Europe, UK, U.S. and Canada. And there's some other segments in the world where it also did. So we've seen interest rates in most cases, depending on which country you're in, go up anywhere from 400 to 550 basis points in relatively short order. And I think, Kevin, that's really the magnitude and the severity of the impact. It's not that rates today, and if you look at sulfur, term sulfur at one month, two months, is in that 5.30 to 5.35, 5.37 range. If you go back historically, you said to someone that the cost of borrowing is 5% on a wholesale basis, and then your bank marks that up, so you're at 7 8 9%, depending on the rate. Those rates are elevated clearly from what they were three years ago, four years ago to today. But when you look at over history, history says those rates are not abnormal. The rate environment we had been in previously was really the abnormal rate environment. The dilemma that CFOs have, and I speak to CFOs with regularity, is not only the increase, but I'll say the speed of the increase. Inside of, in most cases, this began in March of 22. Here we are today in August of 23. So in a span of 14, 15 months, You've had interest rates go up to levels that they haven't been here in the U.S. There haven't been this high in 22 years, and I suspect in other locations, they haven't been this high in a decade, maybe more. And as a result, the impact is they've gone up so significantly so fast is that you can't adjust your profit margins, you can't adjust your overhead. So we've seen as a result of this on a consistent basis, we've looked at, profit margins, and I'll use the S&P 500 only as a proxy. When you look at the S&P 500 of its 11 industries that are tracked over the last 12 months, gross margins have been impacted, EBITDA margins have been impacted. What does that translate to? That means reduced ability to service debt if it's measured by EBITDA because of the erosion there. In some cases, there's been an ability to enhance revenue because of price increases, but it hasn't kept equal pace to enhancing gross margin and EBITDA. So the ability to carry financing, not only with increased interest rates, but with tighter EBITDA margins emanating from tighter gross margins, has come down. So the ability to service debt has been impacted. While that is, in general, is while you've had that EBITDA impact, you've also had valuation multiples because of uncertainty that's transpired over the last two, three years, again, translating to reduced EBITDA margins, reduced gross margins. So valuations for companies have been in flux. Valuations have been falling, and we've seen this most recently, again, using the S&P 500. They've come down. And as a result, if you're a buyer, do you want to buy something when you're uncertain about the future earnings capacity of the entity you're buying? The answer is probably not. And we'll talk a little bit more about where is there opportunity. I don't want to make this all doom and gloom for the audience because
0: there is opportunity. Okay. Debt might be harder to fund, but if valuations are being affected, there's probably never been a better time in the last 10 years to go acquire somebody? I would say there
1: is a strategic opportunity, and I'll use the word strategic very specifically, because I believe you have to be careful. Sellers in this environment don't want to sell when they're at the bottom of a cycle because they feel that their entity, their business, their enterprise is being undervalued. And buyers, conversely, don't want to overpay And that's the classic mistake that goes back, I'll say, generations, not just to the current
0: point in time. But in any deal, both sides need to feel as though they've won, no matter where that valuation is in relation to good times and bad times.
1: Kevin, you're absolutely right. And if you look at some statistics that I follow rather closely, so in 2021, for M&A, M&A to EBITDA multiples peaked in 2021, and this has crossed a broad swath of industries at about 10.5%, and through the trailing 12 months as of June 30th, they've come down to 8.8 times. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, median M&A value to EBITDA multiples. When you look at other measures, which are revenue multiples, so median M&A to revenue, again, in 2021, they peaked at two times. And they're down to 1.5 times. So there's a better alignment that's taking place. And it goes right to the heart of your point is the alignment between buyers and sellers is becoming much more aligned. Sellers accept you're not going to get the multiples that you did. Buyers see that, in fact, that they're coming down. And one of the unique things that takes place and depending on where you are as a buyer in the global market there is 1.35 trillion with a T trillion dollars in private equity money. That's uncalled capital that's available. So the private equity market has been reserved. MA has been down through the first half of 2023 from other peaks. The second quarter was one of the lowest since the second quarter of 2020 in terms of deal value. But there is capacity from private equity to do deals. When you look at the corporate environment, U.S. corporations, as one benchmark, have in the U.S. $4 trillion in cash on their balance sheets. And if you include their international reserves, it's $5.8 trillion. So there is plenty of capacity to do the deals. What the higher interest rates necessitate is because you have less capacity to service debt, is you have to put more equity into the deal. And because of the current, particularly in the US, a conservatism that has crept into the market for financing as a result of Silicon Valley failure, signature bank failure, the leverage multiples that banks are willing to take have been reduced. That's really necessitated. Unlike earlier times, that to get deals done, they're either done on a cash basis or they're done with cash debt, but greater equity. So we've seen equity, I'll say contributions from the historic norm of 30 to 35%. And that's a broad generalization, but in times gone by, very accurate to where the required amount of equity would be. We're seeing that now, depending on the industry, the transaction. You're seeing that up near 40 to 45% because the ability to carry debt is less, the ability to service debt is less. And all of this is really translated to where is the opportunity? Well, I would say that the headline eye popping MA announcements have been less. There are still some, but they've been less. When you look at deals that have been done and thus far announced deals and deals, that have been announced on the global basis is approximately through June 30th, 20,600. So there's more deal volume being done, but the actual number of deals in total is actually smaller. It's about 837 billion. And when you look at that to comparable periods, what does it suggest? Smaller deals, which are add-ons, bolt-ons to platforms, particularly with private equity firms. If they have a platform that they want to scale, they're going to market risking less in the way of capital commitment, finding more strategic, and I go back to that word as I used it earlier, to look at, can we put something on a platform that we have? Can we find a platform at a reasonable price and begin to build off it? So to our listening audience, if you are one of those companies in a wide variety of industries, business to business, business to consumer, healthcare, just to name a few, are still very active in seeing deal flow, even in this environment. But the deal types are smaller, more strategic deals. Corporations, this is an opportunity also, as a kind of second leg to the stool, to look at Divestitures. No better time to step back and look at how your portfolio of your company, your company businesses, and if you are one business, your divisions, your lines of business are performing. Do you have one that maybe doesn't have the trajectory that you once thought? And you can look at divesting that, free up that capital to potentially redeploy it in one of the existing lines of business to drive greater growth and return, or conversely, divest that and go out and find another opportunity to something new. So you're seeing corporate divestitures of divisions, affiliates, some cases subsidiaries being spun off uh, into the market. Again, and the opportunity for someone to add that on if it has value has become much more targeted than it has been in the past. All of this comes down to, I would say, as you look at kind of the strategic planning process for a business in with its your internal control environment, and strategic planning is a key element of your internal control strategy. As you step back and you do that, and in this environment, the cost of money, again, whether you're in the UK, whether you're in Europe, whether US or Canada, it's gone up significantly. And you step back and you look at, well, what is my return on that capital? And as the cost of capital goes up, that benchmark goes up. And I would say very typically in a range, you would see that risk adjusted return on capital that you're striving to get in this environment, without exaggeration, easily being in 15 to 20% of your core business. And if you're going to the market and you're looking to borrow in the equity market, it has to be much, much higher than that because of the cost of equity is up. So there's a strategic repositioning that's taking place as you look at both inside a corporation in business about cost of capital, cost returns, as well as begin to look outside the business at opportunities for MA. There's no question they're there they're smaller, they might take a little bit more time. But even though interest rates are, I'll say, high to this current environment, they're not abnormally high on a historic basis, and you have to adjust your thinking, understanding that. So I hope that's helpful.
0: That's very helpful. Very helpful, Bill. So now we're talking about interest rates probably not being high on a historic basis. And certainly over the course of my working career, The interest rates that we've had over maybe the last 10 or 15 years have been particularly low. And I can remember paying interest on a mortgage double the interest rate that we've got today. Now, I'm thinking back to probably the 1990s. Interest rates went sky high. Now, what's your view over what might well happen in the next five years looking forward? Do you think we're going to return to the low levels? Because the factors that pushed inflation in the first place, basically shortage of supply, should pretty much have gone. Well, I won't I'll approach
1: this question, Kevin, this way. I would say this is not an educated guess, because I have a reader of financial information. One of the ones that I look to for that perspective is the US Fed. So when you look at interest rates futures out to 20, late 2024 2025 2026 they have interest rates coming down significantly in that 2 to 3% range and i look at it and i say boy i hope they're right because if they're right that will open the door and i'll say there's a pent up demand that i believe exists and is growing for business investment as well as m&a opportunities and if rates begin to moderate, and they don't have to go back to 2 to 3% necessarily for that to happen, the signaling, both in the U.S. and across the world, that rates are going to drop. And we're not there here in the U.S. and through most of, I'll say, the industrialized G7 countries. We're not there yet. I mean, We're still on the edge of, well, when is inflation clearly going to come down? And there's no question. And Canada's coming down. UK, it's beginning to come down. In the European Union, it's coming down. Still too high to what anybody likes. But in most cases, it's about half of what it peaked sometime mid to late last year. So it's beginning to come down. I look at it as it continues to come down, borrowing costs come down, there will be a clear signal that the the outlook is positive, and that will begin to spur activity. i view that once that happens, and it's clear indication that the demands for capital worldwide will be a little bit less, borrowing costs should come down. And I would expect if you look at where the Fed is, and even within a range, 2 to 4% base rate And today at funds here is 5.5%. We've gone up at a 22-year high. When you look at Canada, and the bank policy rate is 5%. And The European Union, the marginal lending facility rate is four and a half and Bank of England interest rate is five. If you cut that in half in the next 12 to 24 months, that'll have a dramatic effect on cost of borrowing for homes. They'll have automobile loans are often pegged off of those as indices. And I would clearly expect that it will spur M&A activity as well as business investment. The business investment one is a very interesting one. It's always, do I invest now and can I get that benefit? Can that benefit be so significant in terms of improving the efficiency, reducing my labor costs, even in a high interest rate environment on a comparative basis to the last several years? Or do I wait? And I expect that the investment in AI will accelerate tremendously in the next five years. No one will want to be left behind because the potential, if it's fully achieved, and that's yet to be determined, but the impact of AI from a productivity standpoint, I've read several studies, say could be as impactful as the mid to early 90s when the personal computer became really a mainstay in the workplace. And if you look at what drives GDP growth for a country, enhanced productivity from its citizens. And so the pressure on AI, if it can deliver anything close to what it's being purported, will be enormous. And people will be looking, business people, CFOs will be looking for ways, how do I increase productivity? How do I control the cost? What can I automate? That will drive tremendous growth and demand for AI-related opportunity productivity, it's all going to translate through. And I look at, as it manifests itself, yes, there could be additional borrowing, but that productivity will be an enormous benefit to companies and their profitability for the future.
0: Is there a risk, though, if AI does take off on the rate that we think it might, that the knock-on effect of all that increased productivity is higher rates of unemployment, which in turn will have to be financed by governments will put more fiscal pressure on economies. Well, there's been two
1: very good studies, Kevin, that I've read. And I'll put it this way. I hope they're right. And so McKinsey has one that I thought was very good. And does AI completely eliminate jobs? Which, to your point, if it does, then there will be a need, which really goes beyond what we're kind of focused on today in terms of economics, it will come in to have to address social policy. So how do we retrain people if they're being displaced? It's the age-old dilemmas, business and technologies advanced over time. And so how do, as a society, we reposition people? Or what's that job training? And it should go hand in hand if, in fact, that occurs. The more prevalent view that I've read to the present time is that it won't displace people. But it will make people more productive. So, things that I key in on a keyboard, for example, AI can download information so I don't have to key it. So, as a professional, I'm looking at the information and making decisions that I make today, but I get the information much faster. I convey it to my clients in a form that's more readily usable than today, makes them more productive. So, I clearly The present perspective is the more prevalent view of AI is it will be a productivity enhancer to allow people to do things that they do today, just in a more automated way. We're going to have to watch this. I don't think we can say safely that it will be one or the other conclusively. We'll have to watch how does it manifest itself over the next five to 10 years.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting if we just come down to this podcast. I'll publish this a couple of weeks time, but no, as we're recording, I've got Fathom running in the background, which is transcribing our entire conversation. And it will use AI to produce a lovely summary of the conversation. And the show notes that used to take me two to three hours to produce I'll cut and paste that transcript. I'll read it through to make sure it stays. Yeah, that's roughly what we talked about. That's good enough. Maybe correct the odd error in there. When I get the edited audio file back from editor, I'll take the finished audio file. I'll put it through another piece of AI, which will give me a transcription of the actual edited conversation and will give me a set of timestamps to say, when in the conversation did we talk about significant things? I couldn't paste that into the show notes as well, So I've got to the point that probably eighty five to ninety percent of what I used to do entirely manually is now done automatically by AI, and that's changed in the course of less than twelve months my ability to do that. And that was something that maybe twelve months ago I was thinking, I've got to find a virtual assistant to do this because I haven't got time.
1: Yeah, well, that's a great example, and so productivity enhancement has been tremendous based on the example that you just
0: outlined so bill i think in summary we're saying interest rates are up the problem is the speed at which they've gone up not the level that they're at because they're still low in effect if you look far enough back over history and take an average they're still low we're saying that this possibly gives an opportunity if you want to acquire because valuations of businesses have dropped we're saying that well There's a lot of capital out there, particularly in private equity, that's waiting to be used. People have just become a little bit more cautious in how it's spent. So high interest rates on a whole, I'm concluding, are not necessarily the doom and gloom that we might be hearing in the media every day.
1: I would agree with you. Interest rates in the present environment are one important consideration, but by themselves are not prohibitive. You find the right opportunity to bring a business in that can contribute cash, particularly for companies that are low levered. And Kevin, I go back when I say that to the lessons that I learned in the Great Recession in two thousand eight, nine, and ten. Companies that were well positioned, low leverage, and that made those strategic acquisitions, whether they were bolt-ons in some cases, divestitures, really were well positioned to accelerate quickly. As the economy in 2007, eight and nine reached equilibrium and outpaced some of their competitors. And so I look at while interest rates are high, if you are forward thinking, you have a strategic roadmap, you have cash available or sources of financing, you can take advantage of that where cases your competitors may not be willing or able to do that and position the business
0: for substantial growth into the future. Yeah. So Thinking from the bank's point of view, you've got clients coming to you all the time to potentially borrow money. How has your attitude to those companies to lending money changed over the last maybe two to three years? I would
1: say more in the last two years, and it's really characteristic of where the industry is. So number one, you know, TD Bank, America's most convenient bank. That's our tagline, and we're very proud of it. We are open for business. Our middle market is open for business. You know, our specialty lending areas are open for business. We're extremely well capitalized. so We're looking for those opportunities. You know, as I said earlier, with no surprise, we're looking at the sustainability of revenue and EBITDA, and we're looking at evidence of how that performs through an economic cycle. And the best indicator of that is how has the business performed in the past? And so companies that we see that have clearly stable or growing revenue, stable or growing EBITDA, we are in the marketplace. Last year was a record year for our middle market business. Their share is continuing to be extremely good. We're open for business, but we don't do every transaction because we stick to the mantra Is does the business have that ability to demonstrate consistency of earnings in EBITDA through the cycle? And those that we do, we finance. We're also creative. I don't want the way I kind of outline that to be like so narrow. We work with financing partners. So in many cases with mergers and acquisitions. There are term loan Bs, there's mezzanine financing that comes into play, so that the total transaction from a senior debt, and banks are senior debt providers, so senior debt, those levels are manageable. Here in the U.S., we have leverage lending guidelines that limit what a bank can hold for senior and total debt. So finding that blend in some cases means we bring in other sources of financing, and we're able to do that. To make those transactions work. Hmm.
0: So, one thing we just touched on very briefly earlier in the conversation was the banking crisis that we saw earlier in the year. Do you think that's behind us now, or is that still a phenomenon in the marketplace?
1: I believe that it is largely behind us. Will there be another bank here or there that makes a decision to be acquired or to merge because it doesn't have the level of liquidity? That's a possibility. But today, and there are a number of publications which really highlight this the level of capital that the banks hold today in 2023 versus what they held, if I can use 2007, eight, nine as a benchmark, is much, much greater. So banks are much better capitalized than they are today. And if you look at the lessons learned, if you will, from the banking crisis that has emerged in you know, March and April, I would say that liquidity management matters. Asset liability matters. It's important. You know, matching duration, matching cash available to respond to unexpected changes in the business, it matters. I think in times past, it might not have been as great a focus because there was always a view, well, the bank has cash and can get cash. But the fact that interest rates have gone up and banks have held bonds, I think we all learned as financial professionals in our first finance class that when interest rates go up, the value of bonds goes down. And if you have to liquidate those bonds in an unfavorable environment, there's going to be a pretty steep price to pay. And that's, we've all learned that. And this is a test case That we saw in March and April, where that really comes home to roost, it does in fact matter. This is not a monopoly game, you know. At the end of the day, we're playing with fictitious money. It does matter. So I look at it coming away. Asset liability management will be sharper into the future than it's ever been, and I would say that combined with the capital levels that banks hold today, I view that this crisis will in fact pass on its way now, I don't see a wholesale issue that's going to affect the industry for years to come.
0: And I think I just remember some classic words that simply are summed up by this too will pass. Whatever the status (laughs) is at the moment, don't get fixated by it. The bad times, the high interest rates, they will go away. But at the same time, Now, don't expect the interest rates to stay low forever. This too will pass. Always be prepared for these major economic factors to change and always have some sort of plan in place that will see you through it. And I think that stability of EBITDA, that stability of slight growth in revenue, that is something that every CFO should be bearing in mind and probably going forward saying, well, hang on, If these macroeconomic factors do change, how would we fare going forward? Kevin,
1: I agree, absolutely. If you go back to March of 2020, and here we are in August of 2023, if anything that we've learned in the last three plus years is contingency planning matters. I can remember very clearly sitting in this office on Friday, March 19, 2020 was the last day we were in the office. In January, first hearing 2020, hearing about COVID, not sure what it was and how quickly it changed. And so for most of the working world, our working environments got turned upside down in a matter of days and weeks. Suddenly we're working from home. and We're on Zoom this morning. I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that, before 2020, I knew about Zoom, probably used it less than five times. Life changed, Zoom, Teams, you know, any of the other popular WebEx vehicles became predominant in our lives. You come out of that environment, interest rates have gone up. What are those lessons? Strategic planning, contingency planning really matter. They're no longer a theoretical exercise that you talk about quarterly, semi annually. Now we have to test what are those plans? Can we implement those plans? Do we have the backup systems in place? All of that matters. And I look at it in that respect. These will be lessons that will serve us well for the future to remember that they're not just theoretical exercises, to be prepared for change. Someone once said, a long time ago, the only constant in life has changed. I think we've seen that and that nothing lasts forever. To your point, everything will
0: pass in time. Yeah. And I think something that I've certainly talked about a couple of times this year is the need for finance leaders to be right on top of their risk registers, business risk. And if you're going out to raise capital, whether that be private equity, whether it be going to the bank, whatever one of the key things that people are going to be looking at is risk. And if you can demonstrate that you have good risk management in place, then even though there's uncertainty, that will be a good tick in the right box. Kevin, I completely agree.
1: In Finance 101, you often learn about you invest in a project that has a positive net present value. And that still remains fundamental axiom. I look at it today as... While that's fundamental, the next level of that analysis is what's the risk adjusted return that that project brings. So, while net present value is important, do you want a net present value that's positive at some low level, or do you need it to meet your cost of capital on a risk adjusted basis? And risk is constantly changing. So, the tools that you need and require to constantly evaluate the return. It's not one and done on day one of the inception of an investment or a piece of equipment. You've constantly got to be looking at that, both on a micro basis, macro basis for the business in a constantly changing environment. And in this day and age, what we've seen in the last three years is things can change pretty quickly, unexpectedly.
0: Yeah. And that takes me back to a time in my career when I became an expert of building risk-adjusted models, using Excel spreadsheets, using Monte Carlo analysis. And I'd say, CFOs, go ask somebody in your FP&A team if they understand how to put together a three-point risk analysis, if they know how to do a Monte Carlo simulation, because they are skills that I think are very, very important going forward.
1: Kevin, I agree. One of my favorite things to do, and I don't get to do it as much in my position now, is being able occasionally to get in and do it yourself, to refresh that skill, to be able to understand not just the output. The output is only as good as the assumptions. Are the assumptions valid? Are the parameters that you're using to evaluate, are they valid? Are they deep enough? Are they original and creative in terms of the environment? We tend to look at history as being the only indicator sometimes or the best indicator. And I come back and I say that unexpected things often come up. Someone once told me there are no black swan events. A black swan event is a theoretical constraint that the black swan event, when somebody tells you it was a black swan event, it could be just an indication it was a lack of proper planning. So I, I look at that and say some truth to that. While there always is something unexpected, planning solves a lot of problems, and contingency planning is certainly one we've learned a hard lesson since 2020.
0: Yeah, certainly have. Bill, that has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for being this week's guest on The Grocery FO Show. Kevin, my
1: pleasure. Thank you again for the opportunity, and I've most enjoyed the opportunity.